Hey guys, welcome back to Just the Good Stuff. This is your host, Rachel Mansfield, and we are getting back into the swing of things. I released a new episode last week with my eyebrow expert, Courtney, and we are already back in action. I promised you more episodes and your girl is keeping her promise. So this week's episode, I am so excited about. This is actually one of my favorite episodes that Jordan and I have ever recorded. We are chatting with the Speech Sisters. Now, I started following them on Instagram about a year ago. Brooke and Bridget are amazing. They have all the tips, all the tricks, all the courses. They debunk things that they don't think are right. They share all these tips that are amazing. They help parents and guardians everywhere. They help you get your child talking. Now, I know you're thinking, Rachel, Ezra, and Brody have been very vocal from a young age. What have you been worrying about? But I am a mother. I'm always trying to learn new ways to you know, grow as a mother and as a guardian, what I could be doing, different games and programs and toys and all of the things. And I love following Brooke and Bridget so, so much. I highly recommend listening to this episode, taking some notes while you're doing so, because you are going to love this. Definitely follow them over on Instagram. If you enjoy this episode, share it with some of your friends that who have kids and you think they would find it interesting. And if you don't mind rating and reviewing the podcast, and if you want to share it on Instagram or anywhere, the support is always so, so helpful. I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. And we will be back to chat more soon. You guys know I am super particular about the products that we keep in our pantry. And if you're looking for a top-notch plant-based protein powder to add to your smoothies, your oatmeal, or for after a workout, you have got to try Sprout Living. It is the only protein powder that doesn't have any weird aftertaste or lingering sweetness. They say it tastes real because it actually does, and it perfectly describes their flavors. Honestly, they are so delicious. They are clean. They don't have any, not like the fake clean that you see advertised everywhere. They don't use any additives that basically everyone else does like gums, which can cause bloating for some and natural flavoring, which as we all know at this point, natural flavoring isn't really natural. Sprout Living only uses real ingredients and powerful superfoods and adaptogens, which is really awesome because it makes their protein blends multifunctional, aka more than just protein powder. I love how convenient it is and you save some money by not having to buy all these cool ingredients separately. It's basically an all-in-one. They check all of the boxes. They're certified organic, plant-based, kosher, free of GMOs, soy, gluten, dairy, nuts, and most importantly, they are third-party tested. When it comes to something you drink every day and consume more than once every so often, you have got to drink and use the right stuff. I've honestly never seen such consideration and attention to quality and products like these guys do. And it feels just like nice and reassuring to know that like there's a brand that cares about what you're having as much as you do. They have a bunch of different functional flavors, which makes it easy to find something you'll love and easy to beat blender boredom. There's the Epic Protein, which is an original unflavored blend that mixes well with any type of smoothie or baked good, a chocolate maca that actually tastes like chocolate milk. It is to die for. And even a complete coffee blend that my coffee loving husband is hooked on and they have five others. Go check them out and use the code just the good stuff for 20% off of your order. Again, that's the code just the good stuff name of the podcast for 20% off your order over at sproutliving.com. And also everything is in the show notes for you. Well, I'm so excited to dive in with you guys. I'm almost fangirling. No, not almost like I actually am fangirling because I love your account so much. As a mom of two, like a three-year-old and a one-year-old who are very verbal, but like (laughs) your 
posts just, I feel like are so helpful. They're so insightful and they're just like easy to understand. And you're making this whole process so much more like just not intimidating for parents and so much more like approachable and open. And I just like, thank you so much for doing that because a lot of my mom friends follow you. Like everyone is obsessed with you guys. My mom follows you. Oh yeah. My mom. He's like so lucky. Yeah. So thank you so much for taking the time. I'm so appreciative to have you guys on the podcast. I'd love to start off. Thanks for having us. I'd love to start off and have you both introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Okay. I'm Brooke, one of the sisters. I'm Bridget. We are actually sisters. We're speech therapists. We are moms to five kids. Brooke has three kids. I have two. Um, We started a private practice here in California in 2012, and we were running that together and doing a lot of early intervention and parent coaching. And then we thought, you know what? We can reach more families by using a social media platform and really get into different households across the globe and be able to educate parents from afar and really raise awareness on how parents can get involved in helping a child communicate, helping their child communicate. So do you see private clients at all or full on your brand um, and posting? So with COVID, we stopped seeing clients and, you know, really gave it all into Speech Sisters. Um, But we do still have our private practice. And um, we try to see like a client or two just to stay in it. But Speech Sisters is so busy and has really taken off. And so it's hard. It's it's hard to balance it all. But we do try and and stay fresh with a client or two. Yes. You're reaching more people even by doing what you're doing. So if you think about it from that perspective, you could spend an hour, however much time with one like amazing child, like in a session, or you can reach like hundreds of thousands of parents and guardians and caregivers with a post. So definitely I think that's the beauty of social media. So I'd love to dive right on in and start with when do you begin focusing on speech with your kids? From the beginning, we always say start right away, but you know, many parents don't know this. So if you didn't do that, don't feel guilty about it. It's never too late to start. It's never too late to meet your child where they're at and help them on their communication journey. But we do tell parents, you know, who have little ones who have babies, start and don't, you know, just you want to talk to them and you want to show them objects as you label them and repeat that object. And there's so many different ways you can build your child's language really from the beginning. And it's it it works, you know, it works to set a child up for success and create an early communicator. So from the newborn phase, actually making conversation with my kids did help. Like talking to them, like I'm talking to like a dog, but like (laughs) my kids not a dog, but like, I would be like by myself. I'd be like, okay, Ezra, I'm going to make my lunch now. (laughs) Obviously he wasn't responding. Yes. Um, So really having like that conversation and not acting like they're a baby who can't talk. Exactly. There's a a balance. You want to you want to talk to them. You want to talk through what you're doing. You want to talk through what they're doing, but you don't want to talk really fast and use like really hard words and kind of, you don't want to talk over their heads, right? Because they're not going to get 
most of it anyway as a newborn or a three-month-old. But if you simplify your language and talk slow and use that parent ease voice, that high-pitched, exaggerated speaking style, that works wonders. Um, You really capture their attention when you do that, so they love it. So yes, talk to your baby, talk to them all day, all night, but how you talk to them really does matter too. So like annoying baby voice, like actually helps. Kind of. I mean, you were just saying like, it's how I talk to my dog and that's kind of how it is. It's like, you know, you want to say like, where's daddy? Or like, where's your ball or whatever. That grabs their attention. That's my mother-in-law. Oh yeah. (laughs) Like what age should you stop talking to them like that? And then more on like a, you know, not adult, but like more like a normal speaking voice. Well, and just to be clear with that parent ease with the, you always want to use the correct grammar. Okay. So don't, and you want to use the correct sounds. Like you don't want to say, oh, you're so little. Like, no, no. uh -uh. Okay. Okay. Okay, So use the high pitched exaggerated speaking style, but use the correct sounds and the correct grammar. So that's important. You know, it it just kind of happens. I feel like it suppresses naturally. A parent just kind of naturally fades out of that. But I think it's as your child gets, you know, several words, even like starts, you know, maybe saying like anywhere between 20 to 50 words, you know, you don't have to do that as often, but, or or even starts combining two words together. Like if you want to help your child combine two words together, you might say, open the door, you know, and doing it in that, like with that higher intonation grabs their attention. It sounds like a, almost like a song. And eventually you can say, open that. And you might wait and your child might say door and fill in the blank. But once they start combining words together, I mean, you just naturally suppress it. What about when like talking in like the third person? Is that your question? Because that I, it's okay. This is right. But it's like, honestly, one of my biggest pet peeves, like if I'm talking to Ezra, I'm like, did Ezra finish his dinner yet? Like, why did you finish your dinner yet? Or, you know, in a high, like whatever, but is talking in third person, like, how is that viewed? We say, try not to do it because you want to teach them pronouns. Yeah, you definitely will. Yes. But to go off of that, I, I think I did this more than Brooke. I, even still, I'll be like, give it to mama. And Dave's like, seriously, our kids are like six and three. You need to stop. And I I have, I struggle with it. And I'm like, okay, yeah, they know who I am at this point. But when they don't know who you are and you're still trying to get them to learn who mama is and who dada is or say mama or dada, you want to do that because if you're not referring to yourself as that, they're not going to put the pieces together. So in the beginning, you might say mama and tap yourself or tap your chest, um, or you might say, give it to mama. But once they start saying mama and they know who mama is, start using the correct pronoun. Yeah. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> we have to teach my mom that one. Um, and then how much, uh, just talking about like milestones, I know that that has been like a topic of controversy maybe lately. If you could just kind of tell us like at what ages, you know, some milestones uh, parents should be looking out for their children in terms of speaking. Sure. Yeah. So 
first words typically emerge right around 12 months. Okay. So the milestone for 12 months expressively is for a child to have a few words, anywhere from like one to three words. Um, I think it's it's important to Brooke to explain like what a milestone is. So even before kind of giving those statistics and and those exact milestones, what is a milestone? So a milestone is what approximately 90% of that given age group is able to do at that age. So therefore, if your child is not meeting it, you know that, you know, they could potentially need some extra support or extra help in that area. If your child's just like not meeting one or two of the milestones, like obviously you're going to work on it. You're not going to sound the alarms, but it's a very good guideline um, when you know that it means that the majority of children or 90% are meeting it, whereas the average is more like 50%. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought about it like that. No, me yeah, it's definitely a misconception amongst many parents, even professionals. Um, and then as a child gets closer to 18 months, the milestone, so again, what 90% of children are able to do is say at least 10 words. And that includes word approximations, which are like sounds that your child is using as a word. It also includes signs. If they're using it consistently and independently um, and intentionally, those all those all do count. But um, we want a child having at least 10 words by 18 months. And, and, by- and really, it can include animal sounds. Mm-hmm. It could include exclamatory words. So if your child's saying words like, uh-oh, or whoa, that can count. Yep. As long as they're using those words consistently, independently, and intentionally. Yes. Okay. And then as we get closer to two years old, the milestone is saying at least 50 words for a two-year-old. Many two-year-olds, the average is more like 300 words. So there's a big range. And the big takeaway at that 24-month mark is we want to see little ones starting to combine words together. So we want to hear little ones starting to take two words and put them together like bye, dada, or more milk. That's that's a huge um, milestone to pay attention to at that age. Now, there have been some remediations, I would say, with milestones lately. The CDC did revise some milestones. It's hard to say whether it's, you know, looking at after pandemic stuff or whether it was just time to do so. But some of them were pushed back. So we at this point are kind of sticking to what the American Speech and Hearing Association, as well as the Mayo Clinic follows, which is what the previous milestones are. Whereas the CDC is kind of saying at this point that a child doesn't really have to say 50 words until like 30 months old. But for a speech and language pathologist or an educator, that's concerning because they, you know, they at that point should really start combining a few to several words together, let alone just say 50 words. So when should a parent be concerned at each, at each age level? Like, you know, what, what should they be looking out for? Definitely. I mean, number one thing, even, even before the expressive language comes in receptive language, which is the understanding part is maybe even bigger than expressive, right? So a child has to be able to understand language before they can verbally use language. So we really want our little ones understanding. So, you know, are can they follow a very simple direction? Even, even at around 12 months old, like, you know, where's your nose? Something like that. That is following a very basic direction. Um, but they can gradually, as they get older, 
follow more complex directions. So we want to we want to look out for that for sure. And then definitely just being aware of the expressive language milestones at each age level. So 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, if they are not meeting that milestone, because again, that's what 90% of children are able to do, then we definitely want to get in there and get intervention going. Do you think that depending on your like kids, pediatrician is helpful or hurtful in terms of like referring a patient or a child to a speech language pathologist? It's it varies. It varies. You have some pediatricians who are super proactive and kind of like sound the alarms, go get an assessment before it, it, when it's still a bit premature. We have some pediatricians who are like, oh, your child's only saying like two words at 18 months. Like, let's just see what happens at the 24 month mark. They'll be fine. Let's wait and see. So it's all over the board and then everywhere in between. Um, it's And it's hard to say, like sometimes it, it's hard to say one way is wrong or right. Our whole thing is go back to the communication milestones. Is your child meeting those milestones? And then as the parent, and this is why we started our platform and built our online courses, as the parent, you want to become educated as to what you can do at home to support your child and speak to them with the intent of building their language during the everyday routines that you do day in and day out. And how to make that supernatural so you as the parent don't even have to think about it. It kind of just happens as second nature as you're feeding your child or giving them a bath or getting them dressed, just part of your routine. So what are things that a, a parent or caregiver can do like every day to help be the best influence they can be and like teacher for their kid? Some things include repeating words uh, over and over and over again. So the more you repeat, the more your child will remember and learn that word and then start to use it. Uh, another thing that's really important is getting face to face with them so they can see how you produce sounds and words. That is really huge. Um, and like we talked about before, slowing down, simplifying your language um, so that your child's able to really grasp what you're putting out there. You know, show items as you label them. So if you're talking about a ball, grab that ball, hold that ball, say ball and do actions as you're saying them. Throw the ball and actually throw the ball as you are saying it, because that really helps build that receptive language, build that foundation. And once that foundation and receptive language is solid, that's when we start seeing the expressive language growth. And what are things that you can like really, if you're say like, okay, so Brody, for example, is 12 months and he's, he says like a decent chunk of words already, but if he wasn't like, what are things, like if he was completely silent, like what are things that I could like really do to try and make him not make him because I don't want to like force him but try and like motivate him positively to like start talking like what are some practices so yeah well sorry go ahead one of the biggest things that at that age is really working on imitation uh so we we tend to our kids are typically either like imitators or they're not they either like to repeat or they don't and for the ones that do like to repeat it makes it much easier uh but for those who don't you need to make it fun and playful so that they want to copy what you're doing and the reason imitation is so important is because it is really the beginning of conversation. It's the beginning of reciprocal language. It's teaching them back and forth. You can do this by 
you copy them first. You copy him. So if he were to make a sound, you make that sound right back. It doesn't matter if it's a word, not a word. It could be anything. Even if he makes a facial gesture, something, you know, a mouth movement or something, same thing. It doesn't even, you don't have to start with verbal sounds. You can just, you can start with body language or facial movements and then move to sounds and then move to words. Maybe that's babbling. Like if you're, if your little one's babbling or making like funny vocalizations, like dad, 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 you might say to them, dad, 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 and try to go back and forth with them because that's when they start understanding like, oh, okay, this can really be reciprocal and go, go back and forth. But another way that we tell parents to get a child involved is that early on is to play directly with them. So I think a lot of times parents will from an early age will grab like a toy or a bunch of toys and they're trying to get their child to talk with toys and then the child has to shift their attention between a toy and the parent and it creates a what we call a triadic relationship which makes it more difficult for a child to shift their attention. Now, if you get rid of the toys and obviously this isn't going to be the case all the time, but if you're really trying to get a child to to start saying a word like more um then play directly with them. We call these toyless tricks. So one is like hide under a blanket and then just pop out and say, boo. And then just keep doing that with your child. And then don't go under the blanket and just wait. What does your child do? Because they're probably going to love the fact that you're playing this fun little toyless trick with them. How do they communicate with you? How do they send you a message? Um, so we have a lot of different toyless tricks that we teach parents. And it's just a great place to start because they don't have to shift their attention at that point. They are motivated and having so much fun with just you as the parent and focused on you. I couldn't agree more, especially at the age, like at Birdie's 13, almost 14 months. And someone asked me the other day, like what my favorite toys are for a one-year-old. And I wrote back saying my oven, pots and pans, a spatula, a TV remote, like popping out of a closet, like anything that's not something you can buy at a children's store is like his favorite toy. Totally. That sounds about right. Nothing they're interested in. Um, Have you noticed like different timelines for each sex? Like, like my mom always said, like boys talk later than girls, but like, is that even, is that type of stuff true? Or are those like old wives tales? It can be true. Um, there, there is research around this that shows that in some instances it is true. I think it depends more on how the child is developing as a whole. So typically when you look at development in the different areas of development, if a child's motor skills are peaking and they're like, you know, learning to walk and learning to run and they're super physical, language will often plateau at that time. Never not regress, never regress, never dip down, but plateau. So that motor will peak and and vice versa. So I see it more common. I see it more often where, you know, if a child is like their motor skills are just revved up and moving that the language will take, you know, plateau for a little bit and take a little bit longer. And oftentimes boys are more physical and active and their motor skills do develop quicker. So we, we do see it. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. But they do say that, you know, boys talk a little bit later than girls that that has been, you know, seen that that has been seen within research. Um, However, boys should still be meeting the milestones. Yes. 
everyone should still be meeting the milestone. So, so you don't have to really overthink it because those milestones should still be met regardless. So it is true. Like if a baby say is like crawling or walking or standing earlier, it could be more common for them to like be verbally, you know, talking in a few months. And like, if they're focusing, like their brain's only focusing on like one thing at a time in that sense. You, you, that's a good way to look at it. Like their brain is so focused on, you know, mastering crawling or mastering walking or, you know, whatever it is that yes, like that is their focus, which is why the other areas of development might plateau a little. But again, like Bridget said, they should still meet the milestone. The, the language development should come shortly after. It's like, yeah. a, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you always want to continue to see like an upward trajectory in their growth. Um, You don't want to see an overall regression. Sometimes like we will hear quite often, like my child was saying this word and then they stopped and we're like, how long has it been? Two weeks. Well, that's okay. If it's like a few words and they're still gaining other words, it's when like a child had 20 words and like all of a sudden two months later, they're like, they're not saying any words anymore. Or they only say like mama now. That's more concerning. Okay. Like Ezra walked at 15 months, but started talking at 10 months. And like Brody's the same way. He's almost, he's like 13, 14 months. And he's taught babbles and stuff all day, but he has like the laziest mofo when it comes to trying to walk and stand up. Um, but he's been like talking since or babbling at an early age too. So my kids were the same. They were talkers and not movers. Yep. <laughs> they inherited that from you. <laughs> <laughs> Inherit the speaking from me. No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then any other red flags that people should be looking out for, just like in in general, as their kids are growing up, that they should be, you know, looking out for in terms of of speaking. Like you just said, maybe if they regressed or they were saying words and now they're not. Anything else similar to that? Yeah. I mean, we always like, we always say to parents, do you feel like your child enjoys interacting and communicating with you? Like that's something so simple that you should be able to notice. Like, is your child locking eyes with you? Does your child look at an object and then like look back at you to kind of share that moment with you? Um, Does your, your child smile and like want you to keep making silly noises and they giggle at that. Like if that like social piece isn't there, that can be, that can be a red flag. That can be concerning. Um, if they're not, you know, responding to their name, it's like, it's all those milestones, you know, you go back to those milestones. It's like, they're not doing those things and they're not doing several of those things. That's where, um, we get more, more concerned. So they're not saying the any words or the number of words, or they're really not like communicating non-verbally either. Maybe they're not using like any gestures. They're not pointing, not responding to their name, not following directions. It kind of seem like checked out or if they're like into a toy and you're like, hello, like they don't even really respond. And going back to the toy, play is a really big thing that we look at as well. So there's a development um, of play. And if they're not following that, like if they are not playing with toys functionally, right. Um, If they're just kind of banging them together again, depending on their age, but that's another whole big piece that goes along with language development uh, and motor development and social development. So play is a big thing that we look at as well. 
And like, do they want you to get involved in play? You know, we have some kid, kiddos that we'll work with and uh, maybe they just want to like take a toy and like keep putting a ball into, I don't know, a ball toy or whatever. And it just like keeps going down and they want to keep doing it. And like you come over and you you try to grab another ball and put one in and, and they're like not having it. And it's more rigid. Um, that can be concerning. And then you can't like expose them to other parts of play. They're not really interested. Um, so you want to see a child's, you know, be open and flexible to different play activities and different toys. We always say like one big teaching that we teach parents is to let kids guide the way. So if Ezra is playing with his cars and he wants, and he's sticking to that activity, like go grab your own car and get involved. You can do something different with your car or teach a new word with your car, but don't try to go, hey, Ezra, come over here, come to the kitchen. I'm I'm baking a, an egg on the play kitchen, like over here. If he's super into that car, go with the car. That's where the most language is going to happen because he is motivated, he is into that versus trying to get him into something. We always say to parents, like try to drop your own agenda it's super hard because like personally, I think I have the best play ideas, like way better than my kids. And, <laughs> and I struggle with it. <laughs> no, I mean, as so controlling though, if I grabbed a car, I was like, Oh, so like, are we driving out to the Hamptons? Like where are we going? Like, no, we're driving to New York city. Like hop on, like, let's go. He's very, you hop on his train or you're not coming anywhere. So yeah. That's great. That is great. <laughs> You mentioned like the social skills and stuff like that. So like, how's the pandemic? Have you seen that affected children's development over the last two years, especially like with having to wear masks so you can't really see the facial expressions as well and just more of like being isolated as a community? I would say in our own personal experience and our own private practice, we've definitely seen an uptick in that, in referrals and parent concerns and in delays and late talkers and socialization, articulation, everything across the board. Uh, however, everything that we do as speech and language pathologists has to be evidence-based and research-based. And it's like, it's all happening in real time. So there's not really research to support it right now. It's it's coming out. Some, some studies are the, you know, effects of masks. Um, and, and yeah, of course they had an effect. Like a lot of children weren't able to socialize. That's that's a huge effect. A lot of parents weren't able to bring their children to classes, mommy, me, my gym, things like that. Of course, that's going to have an effect. A lot of kids weren't able to go to school. Of course, that's going to have an effect. And a lot of kids that did go to daycare were around masked uh, caregivers. Of course, that's going to have an effect. Like it's kind of it, when when we put our common sense into it and you just really think about it and then our own experience in, within our private practice. We have definitely seen it, but again, like we we can't say it's definitive until the research comes out to back it. You made me so sad when we dropped Ezra off for his first day of school. It was in this past January, and it's like he's never been to school before. He's had a nanny. He's always had play dates. Like during the pandemic, we lived in Hoboken, which is like a city, like a like a mini Brooklyn in, in New Jersey. We are super active with other kids, but like I'm dropping off at school. He's never been away from us. He's a little nervous. It's like they're coming out with their masks on, the, 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 their mom, the temperature gun. They're like, he has a mask on. And I was like, my heart is breaking for this child. Like he doesn't know anything different, but still like, it makes me so sad. And like, how is he supposed to see like if his teacher's happy to see him if like they have a bag over their head? Totally. It's so I mean, the bottom line is kids learn language and they learn how to talk 
through both auditory and visual cues. That's how we learn to speak and and acquire language as human beings. So when you take away one of those modalities, there's going to have an effect. I mean, it, it is going to have an effect. Like there is going to be some sort of impact on that. However, um, we're, you know, I don't want to say we're coming out of it because I feel like we're going back into it right now. But, um, but things are changing. And I think... Um, people, you know, maybe you're going into summer. So people are, you know, less likely to be wearing masks outside or more outdoor hanging, whatever it is. Um, Parents are maybe becoming a little bit more educated to have that unmasked speaking time at home. And really that's like our whole mission is to teach parents what they can do at home when they're unmasked. No, it's important. Like, obviously I'm all about like whoever has people who have their own opinion, like, that's fine. Like, I'm just not comfortable with, like, Ezra wearing a mask in school. So, like, to the point, I'm, we're putting him in a different school next year. Because I'm like, he's three. Like, this is not, I'm comfortable. That's what we're comfortable with. Whatever other people want to do is totally fine. But I just, like, can't do that to him anymore. He's so animated and such a, like, amazing communicator that, like, I don't want something like that to, like, inhibit him from continuing to grow. Um you said something briefly before about like playing independently. So right now, obviously like Brody and Ez is still probably in like a parallel play type of mentality. When does that kind of break free? And like, when should we expect our kids to want to start playing more like with other children? So I think with Ezra, your three-year-old, it it should happen relatively soon, especially if he's starting in preschool and, you know, they'll try to facilitate it. Um, it's going to be harder with the brothers because the, the, your little guy, you know, he, he won't be interested in that, in that for a little while, maybe like another couple of years. Although I will say that I do find that the younger sibling kind of wants to do it sooner just because they think their older sibling is cool and you know whatever that's what I've seen with my own children Bridget I think you too right yeah definitely I you know Ben and Stella Ben is you know six and Stella is now three but I would say when she was like two and a half and he was five they would start playing together and now that she's three and a half like fast forward they are playing together all the time like pretend play imaginary play um, up in their rooms, we're puppies, we're dogs. It, like they do it all, and it is amazing. <laughs> like a parent's dream. Ezra and Brody. I mean, they've been playing with each other since Brody was honestly sitting up. Like Ezra's obsessed with playing with him. Oh. He'll hand him a car, and then he'll quickly take it back. But he'll like hand him a car to like share, and then whatever. But I know some other kids. Sometimes other Ezra. Either he's very opinionated about who he hangs out with, which he could be because he's very opinionated in general. Um, or he's just like not interested right now. But I think that the more he goes to school, like the more he'll like want to want to play. I think he's just a picky person. It's like, <laughs> it also has to do with personality, you know, like my my first Ben was definitely a little bit more shy, a little bit more timid. And I would say to Brooke, I'm like, I'm so concerned about him socially. Like even when he was in school, we would go to the beach with like a whole crew of kids and Ben would sit right next to me and play. And I'm like, what's going on? Like, this isn't, this isn't okay at like two and a half, three years old. Whereas Stella at like two years old was like, bye mom, going to play. So it just is so variable depending on your child's personality. Makes sense. What are your thoughts on sign language and like doing signs for kids? Because my mom had taught Ezra, it's like a running joke in my family, like more with your hands 
to the point where Ezra was basically saying like four sentence, a four word sentence and still wasn't saying the word more. He was always clapping, like putting his hands together. Um, Are you pro signs? Like how does that impact a child's speech? So the research shows that using sign language um, in conjunction with teaching verbal language will should not and will not delay verbal language. Uh, so we're proponents of it. We say go for it if it takes away, if it allows your child to communicate and takes away any frustration, why not? Um, if the goal is to have your child be verbal, you always want to pair the sign with the word. And eventually, as the parent or the caregiver, you're going to want to phase out that sign. Okay, so you'll stop doing it and you'll just do the word and with the goal that your child will do the same. Okay, that makes sense. I think Ezra was just a rare breed with that. He was just, yeah, I think he just enjoyed doing it. So he just did it to probably spite you. I, you know what? I We talk to so many parents who say similar things. Like once their child gets a hold of a sign and it works and it's effective, especially more with like our late talking children, the ones that are just later to talk, they really very heavily rely on their signs and they don't want to let them go. So it is a thing like you're, yeah. you're, yes, it, it's definitely, it's definitely a thing. Brody doesn't know any signs. Um, <laughs> and when you're learning like another language, so our nanny speaks Spanish or old nanny spoke Spanish too, and they're learning English. Is it common to be a little bit delayed if you're processing two different languages? The little ones, if, you know, they say the research says that exposing a child to two or more languages will not delay their language. Uh, we always tell parents to go for it. It's an amazing gift to give your child. However, um, children should still be meeting those milestones, right? No matter what, if they're, if they're exposed to two languages, we still want to make sure they're meeting those milestones. Now for word count, if you're looking at that, it may be a combination of like, maybe, you know, they have five words in Spanish and five words in English at 18 months. Well, that's great. Then you're meeting the milestone. It doesn't have to be one particular language. Oh, interesting. I mean, I think Ezra just learned the difference between English and Spanish. Yeah. He's like fluent in both languages. It's <laughs> wow. Amazing. Yeah. It's really crazy to the point where over his, when we were living in Hoboken, his nanny would talk Spanish to him all day. We went to a birthday party and my good friend's mom was a Spanish teacher in high school. So she like knew Ezra was like learning Spanish. So she starts talking to him in Spanish and Ezra looks at her and she goes, nanny? <laughs> like he only thought his nanny spoke Spanish. Oh, it's so cute. <laughs> that is adorable. That's so funny. I love um, that. Yeah. Um, and then what about, you mentioned stuff about grammar before. If your child, like Ezra's three and he's using their incorrect grammar, like, what's the best way to kind of like correct his course without like, you know, like yelling at him? Don't yell at him. Um, yeah, and I, don't, <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I wouldn't even bring attention to what he said wrong. You just want to restate it correctly and, and try to get okay. him to hear you. Um, so I mean, say like if he says like me want a lollipop, then what would you say? I want like you would say, yeah, yeah, exactly. You'd be you'd be like, yes, or like you want a lollipop. I want one that's too. A that's a tricky one because you're bringing pronouns into it. It's a little bit hard. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but but yes, my my kids, 10, 8, and 7, they mix up much, much and many, like 
how many dollars is that? And, or, you know, something like that. And I'm like, how much money is that? So I, so even I'll just say, they'll say, mom, how many dollars is that? Oh, how much money is that? I'll just re. And if I think that they didn't hear me, I'll say, look, how much money is that? Like, and if I, if you can get them to repeat it, that's great. I mean, you don't want to overemphasize, you don't want to put too much pressure. Um, and you don't want to like correct him in a way that's negative or anything like that. So I think just reiterating it, saying it correctly in time, he should, he should get it. Do you have tips on overcoming or improving a lisp? Speech therapy. Yes. <laughs> I call a speech therapist. We're yeah. actually, we're actually creating an articulation course um, oh, right now. Cause we have, yeah, we have courses for obviously building a child's language, getting them to talk, but not on speech sounds. So that's like the whole, once your child is talking, parents are like, okay, they're talking, but like, now I don't understand anything they're saying, or they have a list where they can't say L. Um, There's certain speech sounds that are super hard and would be really tough for a parent to try to elicit and correct. Like R, sometimes like a lisp, depending on what kind of lisp it is. And in those cases, if your child isn't saying and articulating and mastering those sounds, by the age in which they should be eliminated, then definitely reach out to a speech and language pathologist. But there are things that a parent can do at home. Like Brooke's um, little one had a lisp. She had a passy until she was three and like would not let it go. And she would say house and like have that frontal lisp or her tongue would shoot out between her, her teeth. And we used to say to her, um, oh, I see, I see the snake. I see the snakes coming out of the cage. Can you say it like this? Keep your snake and the snake is your, your tongue. So you're like tapping your tongue as you say that. Keep it in behind the cage and you tap your teeth like this. House. And then you, obviously you're showing just a perfect smile without a tongue sticking through. And she corrected it. You know, that's all we did with her. She never, and we just did that for like six months with her and and she got it. So there are things a parent can do to try to guide their child into saying the correct speech sound. It's just that sometimes speech therapy does need to be conducted. So Ezra says poon instead of spoon. Anything, okay. anything we could do at home? <laughs> yeah, that's cluster reduction. So that's a phonological process. Kids go through what are called phonological processes. They are naturally occurring speech errors. And they do this to simplify language as they learn to talk. So he's just not quite there yet to, to articulate an S and a P consonant cluster together. So we usually like to see little ones doing this around like by age like three and a half. Um, so what you can do to help him in the meantime, I actually have a story highlight button. If you go to articulation on our Instagram, um, I think I do this whole story on exactly what you're talking about for cluster reduction, but I will try to describe it to the listeners. If a child's saying like poon for spoon or top for stop or nake for snake, what you want to do is I take my right hand and I put it on like my top of my left shoulder and I will then glide my hand, my, my right hand down my left arm, right? So it goes from my shoulder all the way to my hand and I glide it down. And as I do that, I'll say, it's a spoon. And when I get to the hand, I say the rest of the word, right? So the entire time you're gliding your right arm, your right hand down your left arm, you want to make that S sound. Spoon. And giving them that visual and really exaggerating it sometimes helps it 
click for a child. I did that with Stella and then she just got it after a few months. And that's why we're creating this Arctic course because a lot of parents don't know that. And then the child keeps having these errors and then they go to preschool or kindergarten and they're still saying poon and then they need to go into speech therapy. Right. That's so helpful. Yeah, because like I'm that. like hiss like a snake and he goes, but then you try to get him to say spoon and he goes poon. Yeah. Honestly, Ezra's just like set in his ways. And <laughs> well, so I know. Well, like, that's why I got like, like, honestly, in his head, he's probably like F off. <laughs> um, he was like saying full sentences at like two. It was like, like he's been nonstop talking. Like this day, we were making pancakes. He's like, he's like, spee spoon. Like, or what was he? Instead Coming of saying from, teaspoon, he was saying like spoon. Yeah. I don't right. even know what the hell he was saying. And then he'd, like, say tea, say tea, and then say spoon. And he'd be like, tea. And then spoon, and I'm like, teaspoon, spoon. I'm like, yeah, okay, great. We'll, we'll work on that next week. <laughs> Sounds great. Um, how, does, how does tongue tie impact a child's speech? Uh, again, going back to research, as we always do. Oh, gosh, there's, there's conflicting research on this and conflicting opinions big time. The majority of the research does not find a strong correlation between tongue ties and speech and language or speech articulation errors. What I will say, based on what we've seen in our private practice, we have seen severe tongue ties impact articulation for sure. Because when that tongue tie is released and after some therapy, like after some, um, you have to remove. You have to make sure it doesn't reattach. Uh, then the child's able to make the sound. It's it's really un- amazing and unbelievable. But this has been in more severe cases of a tongue tie. If a child has a mild to moderate tongue tie, more than likely it is not going to impact their speech. Oh, that's good to know. We have a whole blog on this too on yes. our on our website. If you type in like tongue tie um, speech sisters, it will pull up our blog. We go into all the details. Oh, perfect. Okay. Everyone do that. Cause that was like a major question. Um, like a very like frequently asked question Uh, as well as how does a pacifier or sucking a thumb delay speech? And I'm happy that you had mentioned that your daughter had, um, a pacifier. Like we got rid of Ezra's when he turned two, it was very easy. Um, but I've never experienced, like he, he was also only had the pacifier to sleep, never in the stroller or in the car. Like we were very like, I was pretty strict about it, but like, does, does it impact anything? Absolutely. It can. And we have a blog on this as well. Um, so you can check that out. We too. have a blog on, we have a blog on thumb sucking and we have a blog on pacifiers. So you yes. can kind of even narrow it down. So what happens is when a child sucks on a finger, a thumb, a pacifier, a bottle for an extensive period of time, they develop a pattern, like a, Uh, incorrect pattern of of sucking and it causes their tongue to thrust forward which in turn will cause sounds to not be produced the right way Uh, for example a frontal lisp so the s is supposed to be produced with your tongue back in in your mouth behind your teeth if when a child is sucking and sucking and sucking that tongue wants to jet forward and so oftentimes 
For a child who sucks a lot on something, they will have a frontal lisp or a tongue thrust is what we call it. So yes, it definitely can impact a child's speech, especially the longer it goes on and the more sucking, the more frequent the sucking happens. Um, so like in our blog, we talk all about this, you know, limit the pacifier use. It's it's a whole different deal when it's a thumb. It's a whole, you can't take a thumb away. It's really hard. I had a thumb sucker and I had a pacifier sucker and the pacifier was much easier. <laughs> um, but you want to try to eliminate it sooner rather than later. And we have a whole system to kind of help um, with that. So definitely check out the blog. All right. We'll definitely link to that then. What is the, what is like the age that you should definitely nip it in the butt by for a pacifier? It's, it's, it's a range. We don't have an exact We actually went back and forth on this because I waited till three and I probably should have, well, I definitely should have gotten rid of it sooner. By two, but in the blog, we say by three, but really like (laughs) for those of you listening, let's say by by two, two and a half. The sooner, the better. I do feel like there's a window of time where like if you do it by one or 18 months, they it's they don't even know it's gone. They don't even know they had it. They don't remember. If you do like me and you wait till they're three, you you can rationalize with them, right? They're a little bit more human at that point where, you know, with my daughter, she got to take all her passies and go to the toy store and pay for a toy with her passies. So that was a big deal. Um, and she was on board with that. So, you know, but I, anywhere between two and three, it's kind of a hard, it's a hard time because they do I, get attached. I love, there's this reel that I'm thinking about where like they plant the passies or they plant the passies like in a garden and then they like tell, they water it. And then they tell the child, like when you wake up, like it's going to, it's going to grow candy. And they wake up and it like grows like a candy garden. I was like, that's, that's genius. That is amazing. That. That's so funny. With Ez, we just honestly, we could, I stopped buying new ones because he had turned two. I'm like, I'm not buying another pacifier. And then you use it to nap and sleep. This is so silly. And we lost it when we were putting him down for bedtime. Yeah, it was like, he threw it and we couldn't, we find, couldn't it. find it anywhere. So like we couldn't find it in, like, anywhere in his room. I was so, I was like eight months pregnant with Brody. And I remember just saying to Jordan, like, whatever, tonight's the night, like he's done. And he cried for like 20 minutes and never asked about it again. Like, I feel like someone's parents almost make it so much worse or like act like it's going to be so much more of a big deal than, than it should be. But that's also why like he never left the house with it. Like, It's, it's like a rough few days to a week and then it's over. I think it's definitely more difficult for the parent. It's the anticipation and the worry and the anxiety. Yes. Now, what are your thoughts on television? Does that hurt or help speech? It's, oh gosh, it's, that is, it's, that's a loaded question. Um, there, Well, first of all, we both have allowed our children to watch television from, you know, the time where it's acceptable. Yeah, yeah, I think we started like, gosh, I mean, maybe around even like 16 months or something like that, um, co-viewing. Now they say two years old. So the guidelines have changed. We believe that there is like a right way and a wrong way to do television. Like if you are just plopping your child in front of shows that are not high quality, then, you know, they're probably not going to get a lot out of it. And it's also about like, how long is your child watching TV, the duration of time, the frequency, 
um, the quality of the show. There's definitely shows that are high quality and there's shows that are not. Um, so there's a lot that comes into play there. There can be a very positive approach to screen time. And we also talk about the importance of co-viewing and knowing what your child's watching or what apps your child's using or what you know they're looking at on YouTube or whatever it is. And how can you as the parent then take that experience and generalize it into everyday routines and generalize that into play and actually co-view it with them to make it a positive learning experience. Um, and we, we actually teach this in our Solving Screen Time Struggles workshop that we are um, having soon this month in May. I love that. Well, I'm really hoping by high quality, you mean frozen one and two because <laughs> high quality in this house, like that's, that's the big deal. Um, oh, that, that is so high quality in my house too. <laughs> so that's Samantha, but I mean, Ezra thinks he's like naming his future siblings, Samantha at this point, he's like, Samantha, Samantha, do you want to go to the birthday party? Is Samantha going? I'm like, who is Samantha? Um, <laughs> I mean, as much as TV, about 20 to 30 minutes in the morning and then another 20 minutes at night. And like, that's it. Um, honestly, it's so we can eat dinner. And it's, then it's hard though with, with ours, with Brody, our second son, because he doesn't really like it. No, I, I know, but he's like a year old and now he's watching it. He's, he, he gets, he's like, uh, we get it. Yeah, we get it. You're preaching to the choir. I mean, that's why there's so much guilt. I feel like that comes around with it, but then it's also like, we are working pandemic parents and it's, there also comes a point where you just have to give yourself grace and do your best and just know that, you know, if you are trying and you're approaching it with mindfulness and really just doing your best to make sure that it is the, the best fit for your family, then that, that's, that's all you can do. I mean, they're like overfeeding them because they're sitting at dinner eating with us or they're watching too. He's watching. <laughs> Like I pick the lesser of two evils, right? Right. Well, cookies or he's having 20 minutes of TV. <laughs> um, you guys are amazing. I cannot thank you enough for taking the time. We have a few like fireball questions. Um, we'd love to ask you guys. Sure. Do you guys do your own grocery shop? Oh, yeah. Yes. Like you go to the store and you do it? Yeah. yeah. I've actually spun grocery shopping because I, I hated it so much, especially during the pandemic when you used to have to come home and wipe your groceries down because I get lost in a grocery store and then that's a two hour experience. And then a two hours of wiping it down. Come on. Like I don't have time to spend like 17 hours grocery shopping, but I have now since then spun it into a very positive experience where I, I have it be me time and I put my earbuds in and I go to the grocery store and I play like Taylor Swift Willow album and I just like go and I get my vegetables and like I love it and now I'm like bye going grocery shopping and I it's something I look forward to or I listen to a podcast so spin that grocery shopping into a mama mama or data time <laughs> like it can be really it can be really actually really good me time I agree we both love it like I've only gotten to put groceries delivered once and it was when we had COVID so we like couldn't go to the store um what is one thing you outsource that makes your life easier or your lives easier? Laundry. <laughs> well, and when I say outsource it, I mean, my nanny does it and she has done it for the last few years and that has changed my life, like for the better. It's amazing. And I dread the day that she leaves us and I have to do laundry again. <laughs> I could. I, yeah. 
And I actually have a similar situation. I leave, you know, because we run two companies, Brooke and I both have help with our kids. Um, but now as they're getting older and they're starting to go to school, like we have two mornings a week where Stella's at preschool for, for three hours. So yeah, Lily helps me with uh, the laundry too. And that is a game changer. A lot of like friends in, in the area we live in that when we moved here and I was asking them for like any like cleaning services or like someone to come to like, honestly, my nanny does everything because my kids started going to school and I didn't want to lose her. So yeah. I think it's pretty common where you kind of like graduate into another role yeah, right? And, and trust somebody. Yes. Um, did you guys ask one? No, I forget. What's the last one? Sorry, I'm like, I'm a little, I'm a little okay. It's your last day on earth. What are you eating from breakfast through the end of the day? Like not just one meal, like your last day so on earth. Three meals and dessert. And oh, snack. wow. Um, mimosas, Bloody Mary, um, coffee. <laughs> coffee. So cocktail, nice. Tequila shots. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so that sounds really good to me. <laughs> I love that. I would, yeah. You know, I, I, if I know it's the last day, I better, I better be altered, gleaming. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd add like pizza to the end and like a nice big glass of red wine. I just, there's no way I could eat food if I knew it was my last day. So I'm just going to drink my way through it, guys. <laughs> okay, that's the best answer that we've ever received. Okay, well, tell everyone where they could find you and like all of the guides and everything you guys offer because what you're able to, like I said, provide to families and caregivers is just amazing. Love it. Okay, you can find us. Our website is speechsisters.com. You can find us on Instagram at speechsisters. We have two courses, two online courses, one for parents of babies, zero to 14 months. This is called Talk on Track. And we have a course for parents of toddlers, 15 to 36 months called Time to Talk. Both courses are going to teach you ways that you can build your child's language from home during your everyday routines just by kind of changing how you interact with your little one. It's not rocket science. Anyone can do it. Super easy to implement. And what else? What else? I mean, it just, and it makes the biggest difference. And I think like the last thing is some, you know, some parents don't really realize why, what the importance of that is early on. And it's really to set your child up for success, not just immediately. So they can start saying like, you know, 50 words by two years old, but by setting your child up for success um, verbally and in within com the communication realm, you're really helping them in the areas of socialization, pre-academic skills, negotiating, problem solving, um, going into academics and literacy skills. Like it is all intertwined. So you set that solid foundation early on and, and create a, a communicator, an early communicator, um, a solid communicator, then it really does carry on throughout the years. You guys are amazing. I could have asked you a thousand more questions. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for you having guys. us. This is fun.